Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT and joining me from just a little ways away, but always close to my heart, the one, the only, Ken Nalbon. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rich. Happy to be here once again. Excellent, excellent. We've got a jam-packed week of news here to cover, so let's get it started with a little segment I like to call News or Nah. We run down a bunch of news stories here, get a kind of a one-sentence take from uh, Ken, and we decide if it is news or, in fact, not. The first one up here, Intel is putting its wireless IP up for auction. This will reportedly include up to 8,500 patents, including 6,000 patent assets related to 3G, 4G, and 5G cellular standards, and 1,700 based on wireless implementations, the rest being uh, technologically related but not necessarily directly related to any particular wireless standard, uh, at least that they can easily put in a digestible article. This is being done separately from selling off of their wireless business, although it will certainly impact how much that sale will actually be worth. Intel patent fire sale can news or not. I say, yeah, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, just the fact alone that they're for sale will generate interest, I'm sure. But really, it tells you about Intel's wireless strategy long term, which appears to be we don't want to do wireless, at least <laughs> as far as I can tell. Uh, unless there are other patents they're holding on to that they think are high value, it doesn't sound like they want to broadly be a wireless company, you know, in all regards. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe if you are more worried about Intel as a company, maybe this is a good sign that they are focusing a little bit more on centers that can be, you know, the future for the company. Not to say that wireless wasn't. Apple was a big customer for them, but uh, maybe a more focused Intel coming forward. Next up on News or Not, Google is making its robots.txt parser open source in a bid to make the Robots Exclusion Protocol, or REP, an official internet standard. REP is already a common method to tell web crawlers whether or not to index traffic. Basically, the, the robots.txt file is the first thing that a web crawler will read, and that kind of gives instructions about what the, the crawler should have access to, if anything. Uh, although uh, it is right now it is not officially an IETF standard, and is not really universally followed. So uh, even like the Internet Archive doesn't necessarily follow this protocol. But more consistent uh, web crawling, Ken, news or not? Yes, uh, because primarily I'm probably in the same boat as many people. I didn't know that the robots parsing exclusion protocol was not a standard. I mean, I've been using it my whole career. I think anybody who's ever run a website or server has. And to hear that, no, this is not, you know, some kind of standard that everybody adheres to. People are just kind of doing it because they want to. It's like, Really? How did that happen? <laughs> it, yeah, it does seem weird that just this text file uh, dictates something that has huge implications for, for websites, traffic, on all that kind of stuff. Really mm -hmm. crazy. Uh, next up on News or Not, T-Mobile is reportedly in talks with DISH and the U.S. Department of Justice to try to divest enough assets to create a fourth national carrier in their uh, bid to merge with Sprint. Now, that's not necessarily news here, but the, the details about DISH here are significant and, uh, and new reporting. The new divestiture would give Spectrum to DISH as well as access to the combined new T-Mobile network, the Sprint T-Mobile network, for seven years, as well as taking control of the Boost Mobile prepaid business. Dish becoming a fourth carrier, potentially. News or not, Ken? No, not really. I mean, this is something that Sprint and T-Mobile are trying to, to appease the courts to get this merger to go through. Um, we see complex deals like this all the time. There's some kind of big merger. <laughs> and I, I also think, I mean, if they do become a carrier, I don't want to buy phone service from a company called Dish. It just makes it seem like <laughs> no. a weird, like a, a Independence Day satellite dish on top of my car or something to make calls. It's very, really, very bizarre. Jeff Goldblum will have to get involved 
It's, it doesn't sound good. Uh, no. Next up on uh, News or Nah, Google Cloud CEO Thomas Curian announced that the Alphabet subsidiary Chronicle was being subsumed into Google Cloud. This brings in the Petascale network analytics platform Backstory, which was released last year, to GCP. Google eating its own like a Greek titan, Ken. News or Nah? Kind of. So... Um you know, security is a big enough deal, and this is a security-focused company. Google wanted to bring it into one of their premium brands, GCP, which are trying to move forward. I get that. But really, why it's, why it's news more to me is the fact that it kind of shows you how much separation or lack thereof there really is for these Alphabet companies. Really, it's Google behind the scenes, even though it's called Alphabet, uh, you know, as as the um, the holding company. Really, it's all about what's good for Google. And, you know, however these companies fit into that play. So in, in that regard, it sheds a bit of light on Google's strategy towards all these different companies that Alphabet holds. Well, it does make me wonder, at least taking down that firewall, and we just saw some some really management horror stories coming out of another uh, Alphabet subsidiary. Uh, it was uh, one of their journalism-related ones. I don't recall the name of it now. But maybe uh, just a fundamental rethinking of this whole, not necessarily the Alphabet holding company strategy, but of how much at arm's length or lack thereof, as you were stating, Ken, to keep mm-hmm. a lot of these companies. So very very interesting. Uh, next up uh, on News or Nah, IBM officially spun off their Watson marketing division into a standalone company. This was announced a while ago, but it has now taken effect. This separates their former commerce and marketing cloud business assets and will offer marketing automation tools, marketing analytics, uh, advertising, and content management tools, at least down the line. New CEO Mark Simpson plans to invest uh, new R&D in AI, expand it to advertising uh, like kind of more properly as opposed to um, just being more of a, of a marketing company. And uh I also announced some partnerships down the road. IBM focusing and divesting more of Watson Deadweight. News or not here, Ken? Well, after your description, it, it made a little bit more sense to me. I wasn't sure how this was news at all before um, because I don't really know that I knew what the distinction was between Watson, the AI product, and Watson Marketing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like they just borrowed the name Watson and slapped it on another department to make it sound cool. But it's really very little little relation to Watson, the marquee IBM AI product that, you know, that they're sticking in the cloud. So, man, eh, you know. I'm, I'm sure there's some Watson IP, you know, kind of in the back end with some of this automation, but, it, you know, mm-hmm. it gets into that whole discussion of branding anything that's automation as having AI, that kind of stuff I don't mm-hmm. Uh, getting into our first kind of larger discussion story here, Ken, I know, I certainly know you were affected by it. Probably a lot of our viewers were affected by it uh, with the uh, recent Cloudflare outage. If you saw some HTTP 502 errors yesterday and you didn't know, yeah, Cloudflare had a major outage. Why is the CDN outage uh, kind of our lead story here? Well, it's because they have over a third of the market for CDNs, like kind of on the internet. Amazon's number two at, with, I think, like 28%. Uh, Cloudflare is like 34%, something like that. And it affected slides from Sling TV, Pinterest, Dropbox, and even Gestalt IT and Tech Field Day were having some issues yesterday as a result of it. It doesn't appear to be the result of an attack, rather the result of a singular regular expression deployed globally at once, causing 100% CPU utilization uh, on their points of presence, you know, various points of presence. This resulted in traffic drop rates of about 82%. So, Ken, Cloudflare is one of those, you know, kind of good guy internet companies in a lot of ways. I think they get to get a lot of community goodwill in general. They don't seem Mm -hmm. explicitly evil um, as so many, so many companies that we now know do. But is putting all of that many website eggs into a CDM basket, is that just always a recipe for eventual situation like this? You know, I don't know that I've ever considered that situation before today because the whole point of a CDN is that it's distributed and able to route around outages and there's no single point of failure. So you're always protected. So why would you get 
uh, more than one CDN in front of your application. And then something like this happens and it makes you wonder what, why, what were they thinking? Why, why did they roll out a single regex globally? I mean, everybody knows you need to do testing and phased rollouts of features and things like that to ensure that stuff like this doesn't happen. I would have considered CloudFront to be, uh, you know, a major proponent of that style of operations. So I'm a bit baffled as to why they chose to roll out something globally all at once. Um, Maybe even without testing it, though, I, I have to think maybe they tested it in a different environment. And for some reason, the effects were not anticipated on their production environment. We don't know what this regex was, what it was supposed to do, how it possibly caused uh, this mayhem. But yeah, to, to, to completely max out, you know, kind of server CPU usage and, and just to really black out large portions of their networks for hours on time. It was most of the morning, I think around 11 o'clock uh, Eastern mm -hmm. time was when it was finally resolved. And yeah, the the question there is, yeah, what is what are their change control policies or something like that, that that failed? Was it something that was scheduled to go into effect and like the QA department just didn't run the, you know, run the checks that they needed to do? I, you know, I, I appreciate at least that we kind of, know, we know it wasn't an attack, right? I, I certainly think mm -hmm. Cloudflare's best interest to reveal that to their customers so that there's not a security concern. But in terms of, you know, work process and that kind of stuff, maybe maybe giving Cloudflare a little bit of a black eye for a company, like I said, that has a lot of goodwill out there. Exactly. It's like, oh, good news. We weren't attacked. We were just incompetent. But, <laughs> you know, really, what's behind that message? And, you know, the thing I fear is that this is going to put more fuel on the fire for the multi-cloud fanboys and girls. Uh, you know, we talked about this like when GCP had a major outage, I think it was last month, you know, uh, in the middle of the weekend and major major services were down that used it. And it's like, well, you should have been using multi-cloud. Well, probably not. You should have probably just been using multiple availability zones in one cloud. Same thing goes for this. Um, just because this CDN went down doesn't mean it's a bad idea to use one CDN behind your application. It means that you need to have a CDN that can't have a single point of failure, <laughs> which I never would have expected from Cloudflare. So I was just really surprised by that. Yeah, I'm glad it was resolved and I'm glad that they're at least talking about it a little bit. I would appreciate, you know, maybe a little like a some kind of case study or white paper or something like that that comes out later mm -hmm. and say, hey, this is how we're going to allow for this to never happen again would give a little bit more assurance, I think. I will definitely add that to my weekend reading. Uh, next up, uh, Bloomberg reports that Broadcom is in advanced talks to acquire the security stalwart Symantec. Now, these are advanced talks. It's not a done deal. It could still fall through. Like, they were very careful in the reporting to say, like, this is not like they're just waiting to sign on the dotted line and put out a press release. Uh, it's been speculated that the price could be around $15 billion. So the Financial Times citing that number and a couple other sources. Uh, Symantec is the largest vendor of security software or cybersecurity software with over $4 billion in sales annually. Uh, but currently is without a CEO and facing a lot of challenges on a variety of fronts outside of management issues. Uh, this would be Broadcom's second giant software acquisition, you know, thinking of if that $15 billion uh, acquisition price holds up after acquiring uh, CA Technologies in 2018 for just under $19 billion. Uh, Symantec would reportedly follow the pattern of that transaction, operating uh, Symantec as an independent subsidiary, with Broadcom aggressively cutting costs to help uh, kind of recoup that investment while still keeping those sales theoretically at the same time. This is opposed to something that uh, Intel did a few years ago when they acquired McAfee for around a cool $7 billion, thinking that they were going to somehow integrate into the silicon, and then they just spun it out because, yes, why would that work? Uh, what does it say, though, about the chip market that one of its giants, you know, Broadcom, one of the biggest companies out there in terms of the, the silicon uh, market, uh, aggressively betting on software here, Ken? Uh, a couple of things that I take away from this is one, that Broadcom is trying to become a more broadly focused company. See what I did there? You know, not, ju not just chips anymore, but uh, so, uh, maybe solutions end to end, maybe around their chips, but still related. 
also uh, the importance of security being recognized. I think it doesn't matter what you do in tech. You need to have an answer to the security question. And Broadcom is recognizing that by buying Symantec. Maybe they're one of the old guard, but they've been around a long time because security is always going to be important. You need to be able to uh, answer to your customers how you're securing their data, their transactions, whatever the case may be, how you're ensuring privacy, things like that. So that's why it's important to me. Well, I also think this may be, you know, being an advanced talk, this must have been going on for a while, but there is a lot of uncertainty now going on uh, with how, you know, Chinese chip imports are going to be going and that kind of stuff. So if you have any production over there, I imagine there's a lot of motivation to diversify how you're making your money and what can be cut off, what kind of control you have over your supply chain there. You know, software doesn't have as as complex of a supply chain as you know uh you know making chips so i could also see that as motivation too uh, again i don't think you know that's the the primary motivation but maybe there's a nice side effect for broadcom uh, having less existential threats going forward that's a good point i didn't think about that really the, the, the case for software is is the code checked in and documented and can we just move production of it somewhere else instantly yes then we're in good shape no matter what the politics and the trade wars have to do with our business yeah i mean they could still be cut off from a market right as a result of mm-hmm. political action or something like that but you're not you don't lose access to the ability to sell that to everyone else as opposed to mm-hmm. you know when you have fabs and stuff that are in other countries uh, having that threat so i thought that yep. was a, an interesting consideration as well Uh, Next up here, a uh, new report from Synergy Research states that the SaaS revenue uh, run rate passed $100 billion this quarter. That's software as a service, I guess, for... If you don't know what SaaS is and you're watching this show, I don't... I can't conceive of how that's happening, but I thought I would spell that out there. Uh, right now, this is dominated by Microsoft, Salesforce, and Adobe, and they account for 40% of the overall SaaS market share, with Oracle and SAP rounding at the top five with around 6% each. That's over 50% of the market by five firms there. Uh, Microsoft alone accounted for $10 billion of that $100 billion this quarter. Uh, Synergy uh, estimates that the SaaS accounts for only 20% of the overall enterprise software market, which I thought was interesting. Ken, does that seem low to you? And what does it say that SaaS, you know, I think kind of seen as, you know, this very cloud forward way of, of acquiring and delivering software, is really being dominated by these old guard enterprise companies outside of Salesforce? Yeah, right. Okay. So um, the old guard dominance is just an indicator of how strong SaaS is uh, as as an operational model and being able to convert their customers to a new model just kind of, you know, it's it's what a force Adobe and Microsoft and others are, right? you know, when SaaS was starting to take over, when all of a sudden you weren't buying, you know, Photoshop or Office, you were subscribing to it at first. I think my reaction was similar to a lot of others is like, well, that's just a terrible deal. Why would I want to do that? I want to own the product and know that it belongs to me, even if I stop paying or if the company goes away. Uh, but we've seen a huge, con- a lot of converts in that attitude because it's not about ownership. It's about convenience, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, I don't have to worry about the infrastructure for this. I don't have to answer to patching and security concerns or operational uptime or scaling. If, you know, we add a bunch of employees, we just add accounts. We don't worry about what has to go into that. All those things, you just run and go. So that's just a huge weight lifted off, you know, an IT department or businesses that don't have and don't want to staff an IT department. Oh, good news. We can just buy all the services we want and they will just work for us and we can just bring our laptops everywhere and we've got them. So it's caught on for that reason. So 20% of the overall enterprise software market, maybe th- maybe that's a bit low. I don't know really what I would have expected. I haven't been watching the, the trajectory, the growth to see you know, how it's been a- adopted over the past few years. Mm-hmm. I would have expected it to be higher, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe some people are just not converting particularly quickly. I mean, 
I know that Office 365 is still big, it is big, but I still know plenty of people who are running Exchange in their own data center. Um, well, and, and good this, for them. This report pointed out that uh, infrastructure and platforms as a service are actually growing faster than SaaS. SaaS is still growing at a, a considerable rate. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we saw all of these companies in the 20 and 30% growth uh, market. And overall, all the other players not accounting for this, companies like Dropbox and, and other uh, companies, Dropbox, first one that comes to mind, were growing. I think the average was 25%. So, you know, we're still seeing uh, substantial growth, but this is, I think, an established model. We're not going to see any kind of hockey stick going forward. Yes, this growth is is certainly uh, sustainable going forward, but that you know it's not going to be overnight eighty percent or something like that. And that you know there there you know to your point, Ken, as convenient as it is to have these SaaS offerings, you know maybe Microsoft and Adobe were the low hanging fruit in terms of having the weight to you know just push all of their users to do that right away. Other companies don't necessarily have that option or are in the process of figuring out how to do that without turning them off to alternatives or something like that. And mm-hmm. so there is going to still be the desire and the difficulty in moving to that model for a lot of these companies. Yeah, you have to figure out a, a strategy that's actually tenable. You know, we can't just say we're going to be a SaaS company all of a sudden and all the customers are going to say, great. It's going to be like, Unless here's what you get by switching like to SaaS. The, the, the Adobe one, I don't know. It made sense to me. I, I feel like for a lot of people, yes, there's like some begrudging of, oh, I have to, I'm like, I always have to now subscribe to Adobe for the end of time. At the same time, it did save people from spending like $3,000 on like the, you know, Adobe Creative Suite upfront or whatever it was, the licensing mm-hmm. for that. Microsoft, I think, was a was a little bit more of a, a magic trick for that company to do that um, and get, I, I see nothing, but again, I'm coming from more of a consumer perspective of like people that, just subscribe to Office 365 because they want Office. Seems like that was an easier pill for a lot of those companies to swallow. I know on an enterprise side, that's a, it's a completely different story, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, up next, and I think this is going to be our final story for the day, an interesting update to the uh, whole U.S. Huawei uh, trade war going on here. As part of the Zoom trade negotiations with China, President Trump announced he has asked the Department of Commerce to review Huawei's placement on the entity list that bars them from buying from U.S. suppliers. This was kind of what caused, you know, on top of all of the tariffs that were going on in China, this was kind of one of the, the big declarations by the administration that, you know, things were going to another level. He further said he didn't think that an outright ban was fair to U.S. companies and seem to suggest that only tech related to national security would be banned. It's since been clarified, in fact, that they are going to resume trade for anything that doesn't impact national security. What that actually means in terms of who can buy what from whom, I don't think has been spelled out yet, but that is now policy uh, going forward. Bloomberg reports, though, that this comes after extensive lobbying from the Semiconductor Industry Association, which includes Intel, Broadcom, Qualcomm, basically all the big uh, chip suppliers, stating that ban would put members at a massive global disadvantage. We also saw last week that Apple, the largest uh, taxpayer in the U.S., now that we've decided that they should pay taxes, putting pressure uh, to ease Chinese restrictions as well, basically saying, hey, we give you bags and bags of cash. It would be a shame if those bags were slightly smaller. Uh, good for the tech market, I guess. You know, uh, we don't. We're you know maybe some of the the tensions there, the concerns that we saw of you know China becoming even more of an isolated uh, uh, district when it, or an isolated area when it comes to you know kind of having their own homegrown options for everything. If we cut them off from the U.S., but does this undermine the government's point that Huawei is a national security threat? If it's just a matter of nego- if, if this was just a negotiating posture here. 
I think it absolutely does. Um, you know, despite the fact that they're saying with the announcement, well, well, we'll allow sales to Huawei as long as we don't think it is a national security concern. They, they just have to cover their butts when they say that. Really, they haven't specifically said what security concerns, in my mind at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think the biggest thing was, you know, Huawei not respecting um intellectual property of other companies, particularly from the US. But, you know, that's not national security. That's a a trade policy type of thing. So, you know, I think the US government and Trump in particular, you know, not to be too political, thought they could engage in a battle with a major Chinese tech power, but found that the nature of this global economy and entrenchment of US tech company interests in Huawei's business made that untenable. And so they backed down as as this administration has done within the past few years with many other hot button issues. It just so happens that the tech industry was caught up in one in this case. Yeah, the the weight of capitalism uh, seemed to outpace, um, you know, the political pressures, at least in this case. And again, this could all change as trade talks break down, new tariffs, you know, get brought up again. But yeah, it does make me question. And again, you know, this doesn't resolve the whole 5G issue, right? This is what kind of started all of this skepticism about Huawei is that, you know, supposedly Huawei's building on all these back doors, all their 5G equipment. The U.S. has been really adamant to not have any in the U.S. and not to and trying to limit mm-hmm. what partners can do or what uh, allied countries, not partners, uh, allied countries are going to be putting into their uh, their infrastructure. Um, that doesn't resolve this. The, you know, 5G is still off the table, especially in the U.S. And certainly the U.S. isn't like advocating for Huawei technology anywhere else. But it does make me question, again, like, I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that a company that's, you know, uh, partially or wholly a state-owned, you know, Chinese company might have some backdoors at some point or, or, or you know, some connection to the the state surveillance operation. You can say that about a U.S. company, you can say about a Chinese company, basically anywhere it's at, when there's state control of it. Mm-hmm. That seems like it's not outside the realm of possibility to propose that, right? But when you are alleging all of these security threats and now saying, well, it's fine, you know, that that to me is a little boy crying wolf. And, you know, if there are legitimate security concerns, you know, for people in the intelligence community that were worried about this, I, you know, I wonder how if that's a frustrating predicament. Yeah, I agree. It's not outside the realm of possibility that there are some legitimate concern, security concerns, but they don't appear to have manifested if, you know, this course correction has happened. You know, we probably wouldn't have seen this if there were so, so many legitimate security concerns. I, I basically agree with what you just said. Yay. Uh, all right. Well, that just about does it uh, for the Gestalt IT rundown for this week. Uh, Ken, where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined to check it out? You can find my writing on gestaltit.com. You can find my random th- thoughts on Twitter. I'm at Ken Nalbone. And occasionally you can find my handsome face introducing customers. I'm sorry, not customers, presenting companies at Tech Field Day events. Check out techfieldday.com for more. Absolutely. You can find me on Gestalt IT as well. Always fun to have uh, uh, new articles and stuff up on there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. And you can find me, Ken, Tom, and occasionally uh, Stephen Foskett here Wednesdays, 1230 p.m. Eastern Time for the Gestalt IT Running Down. Ru- running Down? The Gestalt IT Rundown, providing you your IT news of the week. Until the next time we meet, remember, everybody, have a super.